0: the incomparable number 205 august 2014
1: welcome back everybody to the incomparable podcast i'm your host jason snell and uh in this episode we're going to be talking about brad bird's 1999 animated motion picture the movie he made before he made The Incredibles. It's The Iron Giant. It was a box office bomb, but it is universally loved by critics and by many people out there and has had quite a following uh, after it left the theaters that nobody, the empty theaters, and uh, went to, into Home Video, where it is, is beloved. We're going to talk about it tonight. Let me introduce the uh, the panel that is going to be discussing The Iron Giant with me. David Lore is out there. Hi, David. Hello there. Good to have you. Uh, Steve Lutz, also out there. Hi, Steve. Hey there, Scout. (laughs) very nice. Uh, Everybody drink some espresso. And uh, Tony Sindelar joins us. Tony, it's good to have you here.
2: Hey. Squirrels in my pants, Jason, and it's climbing its way out of here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Everybody avert your eyes. Uh, uh, John we, we we have to, when we're talking about animated films, we have to have you here. Thanks for being here. I liked
0: Brad Bird before. It was cool.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I called in the uh big guns for this one. Uh also somebody I enjoy talking about animated movies with. Merlin man is back. Hi Merlin.
3: Oh, I remember the raccoon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Boy, I love it when people come prepared with references because I don't. So I'm I'm glad you guys are picking up the slack for me. Um that's uh that's great. So we I so like I said, nineteen ninety nine, Brad Bird made this movie traditional animation. Uh, it was (laughs) cost like $70 million and made, uh, made 30 million. Um, yeah. Ouch. So, so I don't know uh, quite where to start because I never do with these things. I I guess I should ask if anybody has any opening remarks to give about this (laughs) film because now would be a good time because it's the
0: opening. Nothing. All right you, you you dragged it out of me <laughs> Oh boy <laughs> oh, man. that was harder than usual. I, I didn't have them but I, I do have a, a thing to start with and the the thing I think I thought of when we were watching this is that this movie we, you just discussed it this movie has a lot of problems as a product because as a product as as conceived it's a it's a family movie you know for children and adults set in a time period that no children will have any memory of or or the or the parents of those children quite frankly yeah or maybe maybe it'll be like their parents memories or whatever and the the underlying themes of the movie are it's not just arbitrary the setting like the the, the themes of the movie are intertwined with this whole cold war setting and everything and so and you know there's no cute animal sidekick there's no uh royalty there's no monsters it is yeah, it does not work well on paper. If you were to if you were to, I'm, I, it almost amazes me that this movie got made because it doesn't look like it should work at all. And truth be told, watching it back again, some parts of it work for fine for me as an adult. But I'm like are kids ever going to I kind of understand why it didn't make a lot of money, which is a shame because it's a, it's a great movie, but it it I'm going to say it's ill conceived, but I I just think like, boy, how did he ever manage to get this made?
4: Well, reading up on the uh, production on uh, the ever-useful Wikipedia, it sounds like uh, just as they were ramping up production on this thing, Quest for Camelot came out and did absolutely horribly uh, and kind of threw the whole uh, the whole Warner Brothers animation studio into whack. Um, and, and somehow that translates to them not paying that much attention to what Brad Bird was doing on this production and him being allowed to do basically whatever the heck he wanted. Not sure how that works exactly, but...
2: It was also originally conceived as a musical, if you can imagine what that would be like.
4: Well, it was a musical, sort of. Pete Townsend put together the, uh, his, his version of it, which was supposed to be... It's been a while since Tommy was out, and I feel like producing another horrible rock opera, so let me find this ancient, uh, this ancient book by the guy who married Sylvia Plath, and, uh, and we'll set that to music.
1: That explains why Des McAniff is uh, is credited here too, because they were the collaborators at the La Jolla Playhouse. In fact, on on Tommy, uh, right, and so that explains why they're inexplicably credited as producers on this movie.
5: Well, they did produce this for the stage at one point at the what the Old Vic in London or something. I think so, yeah. I I remember when the concert album came out, because I was working at a record store at the time, and and they had us put up a huge display, and nobody ever bought a single thing the whole time I was there. (laughs) But, you know, we had to play it and listen to it in the store. It's like, oh, the Iron Man, the Iron Man. And, uh, you you know, it wasn't awful. I could see why nobody ever did anything else with it, but...
4: I guess Brad Bird had so much free reign that at one point he just decided to jettison all the songs, and Townsend said, "Ah, whatever,
0: I got my check. It seems like he has a real affection for the setting, though, because it's almost like a period piece where... It is. It's not It's not incidental. Like he, It almost makes you think, like, this is how he grew up, but he's not that old, right? So it's not how he grew up. Maybe it's how his parents grew up, uh, but there's a real, you know, it, it really speaks to me uh, on that level, which is really weird when I think about the, the person who made it and in the intended audience.
1: Well, this is also a love letter for the... Um for the movies and the culture of this period, even if you didn't live through it. I mean, the idea that there's the, it's not just the, the cold war setting, but it's the, you know, the war of
3: the worlds.
0: Oh yeah. When he's watching that black and white TV, that black and white TV section, I feel like is the best part of the movie. Like what's on the television screen. (laughs) Yeah. My,
3: my daughter asked if that was a real movie because she wants to watch it
0: with the stilted dialogue and the brain that skitters across the floor and, and and the acting from the lead uh, male character in that movie.
5: And, and the MAPO commercial is a real ad from the 50s.
3: One thing that's so great in these, and you, know, you see it again in The Incredibles with Frank and Ollie appearing in that as well, is the absolute affection they have for the animation of that period as well. You know, and how much this, this really could be a MAPO commercial in some ways, some of the animation. And all the care that goes into just, you know, one thing I noticed this time is like how everybody who has glasses. Their glasses are just a little bit tinted. They don't, they're not just clear. Like there's a lot of care put into to every frame of this.
1: Yeah, it's 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 beautiful. It is funny though that we've got the 50s. We his uh, Hogarth is our main character. His mom is a waitress in a diner. Uh, Harry Connick is basically a beatnik artist. Um, there are lots of this is it in Maine, so you've got sort of like the 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 guys who work on the boats and then you've got the guys with like the deerstalker caps and the and the shotguns and you know all these types and it, it feels like um, you know I having not lived through the fifties, I, I assume it feels like what depictions of the fifties uh, retroactively felt like, and not what the actual fifties felt like. But it definitely has that. It is of a time. This is what you know. This is a post-war, Cold War story, and 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 uh, and it, it plays it up. And I, I really enjoyed it. But you know, I'm not sure my kids
0: really got. I mean, we had to explain this is the Cold War. This is. Yeah, do they know what a beatnik is? Or, like, just the Cold War, the culture war, all these things. I mean, they say the word beatnik in the movie to try to maybe give the kids something that they can, I guess they could Google it back then. (laughs) The (laughs) the kids pick
4: it up. I mean, he's just, he's a cool guy who lives on his own in a, you know, in a junkyard and wears bathrobes and...
0: Yeah, in in many respects, like, the the setting, like, we just said how, how, uh, you know... How much care they put into the setting, but you could. This story is strong enough that you can set it almost anywhere. It just gets reinforced by this setting with the Cold War stuff. But every every other part of the movie like works. Like the story structure is very sturdy. It's just that the theme like puts it up on top of a mountain. You could take that same story structure and put it on the ground in any setting, and it would still work.
4: Well, I think you have a much easier time selling the fact that the the military is willing to send a bunch of trucks and tanks out, you know, in the midst of the Cold War when Sputnik has just launched and they don't know, you know, if they're dealing with a big Russian invention or a death ray or something at this point.
1: It's definitely got this, this movie has got the, um, at the start, it's a classic, uh, uh, a boy's, uh, you know, boy's dream story, uh, fairy tale kind of thing where it's uh, who, what, what kid in the fifties wouldn't dream of getting as Hogarth says, my own giant robot, right? So he (laughs) finds this robot, he befriends them. There's a little bit of that uh, mouse, uh taking the thorn out of the paw of the lion kind of thing happens, where he saves the iron giant from being electrocuted at the power station, and for the convenient giant on-off
0: switch that every power <laughs> station has outside. Of...
1: <laughs> that is a super useful
3: feature for your power plant. You have to have one of those.
1: It's a master control in case something happens and a giant robot is caught in the power lines. You can just go
3: boop. It was uh, it was an insurance thing in the fifties. You had to have an on-off switch. Yes, and you just run up to it yeah well, there was a fence. the fence got knocked down, but yeah. you
1: know that's true good point that that well, then it makes perfect sense <laughs> if it was behind a fence that's that's okay, but then the robot is sort of. You know, he, he's somebody has shown him a kindness and the robot obviously has no has no memory. We have no idea where the robot came from. There's no it's never explained, which I, I which I kind of love. Um, but that's how this story starts. As we, we meet Hogarth, we know that he's got a mom, but not a dad. He, uh, You know, she works really hard. So she leaves him to take care of himself sometimes. He ha- he watches that really uh, hilarious uh, zombie movie basically um definitely that feeling of the old black and white tv but his antenna gets eaten (laughs) so he has to go out (laughs) on a on a on a journey and that's where he meets the robot and that all happens up to the point where where the robot uh starts following him around like a like a, a a stray dog that he's collected um it, it, up to the point where there's a, a a train wreck caused by the giant not being able to put um try he tries to eat the tracks and then tries to put them back and then the train hits him and he breaks up into a million pieces and
2: I like how chill the engineers are after that I mean the engineers <laughs> literally hit a giant monster at dark in the middle of the woods in Maine and the train dree rails and the engineer is like someone out there everything okay how's it going. <laughs> He he is seen with
4: bandages around his head afterwards, so perhaps he's just you know concussed.
1: <laughs> and that's the that's the um, the cameo right there, right from the classic animators of of Disney, who we see again in The Incredibles.
3: Yeah, they were they were what do they call them? Was it the, what do they call them? Circus the, like the Seven Old men, Nine Old men? and they they worked on Bambi and
2: Dumbo and maybe Snow White. Pretty much everything from the thirties to the fifties. It's um, amazing. Well, so they invented you know. The, the twelve principles of Disney animation, which are still taught to this day. Uh those two work together on um The Illusion of Life is a really great book written by the two of them. That's like that's a, a classic textbook in a lot of animation courses. But
1: this is the the um the train wreck is what brings us our um our plot when the 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 Fox Mulder of nineteen fifty seven Kent Mansley <laughs> appears on the scene. He he is from some office of of investigation he's from the bureau of
5: unexplained phenomena
1: yeah you, you only see his car door briefly because his car is then eaten
5: <laughs> and and i have to say i mean christopher mcdonald does his voice and he does a great job with it but it is the william atherton role and he's doing a william <laughs> atherton voice it's amazing
3: he's 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 like that he's totally like the 90s that guy
4: I don't know. I'm not sure Atherton would have tried so hard to ingratiate himself to the kid. It just doesn't seem his style. But
0: uh, Ather- Atherton would have done a chloroform on the kid, though. That's, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs>
4: probably,
1: probably before even talking to him. I don't know. The, the ingratiation is so smarmy when he tries to be so, so you know, so-called <laughs> befriend Hogarth that you never believe it. Hogarth doesn't believe it. Nobody believes it. It, it, it is. I, I would say I think of William Atherton in in something in something like uh, like Ghostbusters, a real genius, especially where he he is. He has that ingratiating, like, ah, oh, yes, what? well, like in Ghostbusters, what is the magic word, right? But he doesn't mean it. He is just a jerk. And Mansley is exactly like that. That's a, that's a good call.
3: He's got that quality. He's got that quality that I used to have of somebody who, who, who thinks that people like him. And, he, and especially he thinks, yeah, well, easy text. He also, he thinks, <laughs> and he, he, thinks he understands kids. You know, when you meet somebody who's like, I understand how kids work. You know what I mean, Ranger?
1: (laughs) How you doing, buckaroo? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I wrote wrote a bunch of those down. That is great. Tiger, slugger,
0: cowboy, champ,
1: ranger. (laughs) Just keep going.
0: (laughs) He's got a smile on his face in a lot of this movie, and every single one of the smiles is slightly different and all incredibly aggressive. Like, his eyes are angry, but his mouth is smiling, and the whole thing is good. It's good animation.
1: Mansley's journey is is funny, too, because he comes to investigate this thing, and the thing is a real thing. And he he is doing investigative work, and he finds that it is a real thing, and he calls the army, and the army doesn't want to hear him. And that's when I wrote down that he's he's the Fox Mulder of the of the 50s. Uh, they don't want to believe him, but he, he believes it, and he, he's not wrong, but... Um, but then his then he becomes like uncontrollably obsessed and he chloroforms the kid and and, and <laughs> late toward the end of the movie he calls on calls a nuclear strike against everybody else's orders on a town in the United States the town that he's in yeah b- bit extreme at that point he kind of loses it. And the most important thing about, about Mansley, of course, is that, uh, Steve, I, I'm sure you appreciated this. He is the source of a long, long string of poop jokes because he has fed laxatives.
3: <laughs> so many poop jokes. Yes.
1: Poop jokes are measured by a buttload. So that's uh, appropriate. Oh, the, my favorite is that he crumples
4: up the laxative into Mansley's milkshake, and uh, he asks what it's called, and he says it's called a landslide.
3: Which, of course, yeah. it be. <laughs> but then he's describing he's describing the uh, the he's going poop poop <laughs> when it's going through the air. It's it's gold. Yeah. Well, and
1: he's got the, there's that there's that moment where he's got to find the he's got to find the bathroom, and then and then later he's like behind a bush. And he's just like, oh, I just, I can't, and and it's and it, it's not even said; it's just it happens. And if you're not paying attention, you don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's all sight gags. Yeah, yeah. I know that's the. So anyway, I, I was amazed by that. That that that's the that's a beautiful <laughs> thing that happens in the middle is that the 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 kid gets him back by making making him poop.
3: You know, one thing one thing that grabbed me though from even from the very beginning uh, and all throughout the film is how much and this is so classic disney when it's done well is like how much care goes into every character like every minor character is is unique they've each got their own funny expression their own funny teeth their own funny little quirks and way of talking and like when you see, when you see those little like uh, little you know exercises where they're showing like how this character is going to walk it does he doesn't walk like this other guy like everybody's got their own little thing and it's uh You know, from the, from the, from the Emmett Walsh guy at the beginning through, you know, the, the guys in the, in the diner, like everybody, you know, to the shore, like every, everybody's got their own little like tick. You know,
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually had a hey, it's that guy moment with one of these characters where I was like, where have I seen that guy before? And I, this is a cartoon. I haven't seen him anywhere before. <laughs> but it felt like this, is, and the voice probably was, but it's like, this is a character actor. This is a
3: face that I've seen in a million things. The, the guy who's having his car towed he has like two lines and he's so memorable, you know, <laughs> has yeah. a large bite out of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm selling it.
0: <laughs> Even the woman character, like the the blonde waitress who has no lines, I think, and just uh, comes out of the door at one point and, and brushes against Hogarth's mom. Like, yeah, they, they actually managed to draw women who look different, which is apparently a difficult thing to do in modern animation when you've got the same character with different color hair and makeup. The the blonde waitress I remember because she is so like she is so incredibly different from Hogarth's mom, uh, and so the, and she has no lines, you know. So that's like the. You said every every character unique, and like each character is an opportunity to do something fun with animation. Basically,
4: I think the fact that Hogarth has uneven front teeth is the master stroke, though. That adds so much character without. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of defining characteristics, but the teeth are enough to just immediately get you on his side.
3: There's also they do a lot with sound in general. I was noticing uh, this time I watched it by myself, so it was a little quieter in the room and noticing like how much stuff in the background you can hear conversations like actual conversations that the waitresses are having and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's a nice touch
0: and you can make out like there's words on the newspapers, words on the televisions in the background people's conversations, and they manage to i mean they know you're only going to pick up one or two words, but they manage to make them relevant to the setting or the plot events in some way the diner has like three different conversations happening
1: simultaneously that if you listen, they are all relevant and they all lead into, you know, you can hear the guys at the booth behind them having that conversation the whole time before they interrupt. And it becomes, you know, it, it's, it is, it, that's a great scene.
4: Although how they manage to discuss anything with no ear holes is utterly beyond me. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a stylistic choice. It's
0: weird when their ears are so big.
5: I was happy that they all had, they had 10 fingers. You know, not all cartoons have ten fingers.
0: Yeah, it did make their hands look a little big because Hogarth's hand looked a little bit comical. But all the all the features exaggerated a little. Uh, someone in the chat room pointed out that Brad Bird was born in 1957, so maybe this is not so far off from his child. Obviously, he would be an infant during this time and not a child. But the things, yeah, it said set, set the year he was born. Yeah, I know. But the, so the thing, the thing I was picking up on uh, for memories of uh, of just being a boy in any time. The kid thing details uh one of them is when he has to distract his mother uh by making a noise so he can drag the big robotic hand through his house Uh, he has a coin and instead of just throwing the coin into the other room he he flicks the coin does anyone know how to do that where you snap your fingers and point your elbow at the target you want to hit and snap your fingers yeah he does that with the coin rather than just throwing it, and that's that's a kid thing to do, learning how to do that, whatever. When he dismounts his bicycle, riding to the junkyard at one point, he gets off on one side and glides while standing on the pedal for a little while. There's no reason to do either one of those things. He could have just thrown the penny, he could have just arrived on his bicycle, and gotten off the normal way, but that's not what little boys do. Little boys learn to do all these little boy things, and so you know those little details really pull you into the setting, and it, it makes me think that like that Brad Bird is, if not drawing himself, drawing like parts of his own childhood.
2: I think about the first scene where he he appears in the diner and he runs up to the counter and he jumps on the stool and he does the thing where he's talking to his mom and he's just swiveling his like you know torso back and forth on the on the on the stool because you know he's a kid he's not going to sit still while he's talking to his mom he's going to be fidgeting with everything. Um, I love his uh, his child phone mannerisms the you know formal but completely <laughs> you know dead inside.
5: Right. Hi, this is Hogarth Hughes. Who's calling, please? <laughs>
1: <laughs> also if you want your mother to leave you alone, what you do is go into the bathroom again poop. You go into the bathroom, <laughs> make lots of grunting noises and it's like, "Oh, are you okay in there? I'm fine. Leave me alone." <laughs> that apparently works for Mansley too. Yep. A lot of poop jokes in this. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Let's see what else uh what else should we talk about? I mean, we should talk about the
3: giant. Yeah, he's um He's a, he's a piece of work, and I, I didn't even realize in the first few times I watched this that he's CG while the rest of the film is hand-drawn.
1: So he's like the the spaceship in Futurama where he's, he's CG designed to look like cell animation?
3: I didn't, I didn't know that the first time I saw it, but now, now I see that. But I, I saw a note today that basically to make his motions fluid would have been tough with— uh, Yeah,
1: his, his movement is so fluid that it's clearly computer-assisted. I don't know the details
0: of how, how that works— so he's. See, see, what, see, when they just started doing this with the incorporating CG into traditional animation, it was very difficult to get it to look like it fits.
1: Well, Beauty and the Beast is the example, right? The, the big dance scene in
0: Beauty and the Beast is a CG scene. But even in Beauty and the Beast, that background is like, oh, now I'm looking at something different. Or Aladdin. Aladdin had the CG uh, carpet ride. That is not incorporated well. The Iron Giant is incorporated amazingly well for how early it came. I think it's actually incorporated better than Futurama, to give it another... Obviously, TV budgets are different than $70 million for a movie, but Futurama, you know, is the the more modern example that everyone knows, and a lot of the times, you know, the spaceships and stuff uh, poke out.
3: Yeah, well, CG, like, it's it's almost like, like, you know, your advice, John, on, on how to set your TV so you don't get that uh, soap opera effect. It's almost like when you see CG stuff in cell animation, it looks too fluid. There's that one in, in Miyazaki sometimes, there's one where... Was it House Moving Castle? No. It was one of the ones where there's a big walking castle, big walking structure, and it looks really CG. You know, it's too smooth. There's too many parts moving at once. It doesn't have any kind of, like, jumpiness in the frame, and it looks out of place. I didn't get that at all. That's why I couldn't tell at first.
0: Well, so in Princess Mononoke, the, the, not to turn this into Miyazaki podcast, uh, the uh, the Night Walker was all done in CG, and Miyazaki didn't like it and redid it all by hand, or had them redo it all by hand or whatever. So, uh, you know, it's there's a high bar for that but uh the big thing if you're looking for if if you're not looking for like oh it doesn't look like it fits in like it's a bad matte job or like it looks like it has specular highlights when nothing else does or whatever the big thing to look for is that 3d things is perspective correct All right? so when you rotate the camera around they look exactly like they would from that thing whereas hand-drawn animation is not perspective correct many cartoon characters you know charlie brown uh you know is a great example do not look like any real physical three-dimensional object could look like from, from various angles. And then you have to transition from this pose, where we know what Charlie Brown looks like, to this pose. And there is no in-between that makes any sense there. Whereas a 3D shape, you model it and and you put the virtual camera on it and it looks, it looks correct from every possible angle. So it's usually very easy to pick out the 3D things, uh, even if they do a perfect job of blending the textures. But in this movie, because the Iron Giant is an Iron Giant, his perspective correctness and his proportions and everything... Work you're like, oh, he's a robot. He's not a flesh and blood, wiggly, you know, squash and stretch uh, Disney animated character. He's a robot, so he should look like that. And they do such a great job with the detailing that he never looks like he's popping out from the frame. He always looks like he's there.
4: Yeah, before I realized it was CGI on the robot, I, I wrote the note that I was impressed at how they managed to get the perspective on the robot just right from down at Hogarth's level. Because there are several scenes that are taken from where Hogarth sat and you're looking up at the giant towards his head. And you really get this amazing sense of how huge it must be from the perspective of the kid. And uh, I found that pretty impressive. And uh, I'm less impressed now that I realize it was a computer behind it.
0: You should be so impressed that they fooled you.
3: That's what I'm, I'm getting
4: there. I'm, it, the fact that it, didn't, uh, that it didn't stick out like a sore thumb to me is also impressive. So
3: I, I can't believe this thing was, I mean, the, a couple of things I read suggested that this was pretty constrained. He had to pull in people from CalArts to help out with some of the animation. It, this does not feel like a rushed movie to me. I mean, you know, maybe thank God for Quest for Camelot that you could get the poop jokes in. But, you know, it's amazing that, you know, I thought it felt uh, like everything he wanted probably got into this.
4: Even the Dean unzipping his pants and unleashing the squirrel, which I think if the studio heads had been paying attention, (laughs) might not have made it to
0: the final cut. And the opening scenes where they had the... the, Or they have the giant waves in the opening scene, the waves of water, and that that's always expensive to do anything with water. But the fact that they opened the movie with that, uh, and I think they went back to it like, that's... And they did... The waves are also CG, uh, because, you know, the, I mean, maybe that was cheaper to do that, but in 1999, saying you're going to open your animated movie with a sequence in the water...
3: That was really good water for 1999.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was stylized. It fit in with the rest of, of the movie, but... Uh, yeah, it doesn't, like you said, does not look like a movie where he was like time or budget constrained because you would have just like, you know, you would have just drawn that from the perspective inside the boat and had rain lashing against the window instead of spending all this money on the CG waves.
1: So, John, I um, obviously saw this movie many times before I ever saw Castle in the Sky. Um, and when I saw Castle in the Sky, I thought, hey, nice robot. I wonder. And I assume that this is a huge influence on Brad Bird for doing the Iron John. I know that the probably... It's possible that the book, um, the, the Ted Hughes book, influenced Castle in the Sky. I don't know. But the, the, certainly when I saw Castle in the Sky, I thought, oh, I,
0: it felt very Iron Gianty to me. Well, there's a, there's a long tradition of big giant robots in Japan, so I don't think you can pinpoint any one uh, influence. Design-wise, the bucket head, the trapezoid chest, the sort of simplified design. Maybe you can draw a connection there. I forget who among the Pixarian people are the rabid Miyazaki fans and who merely just like him. So I don't know. Uh, I, can't, I don't know if you can draw that straight line, but we can look it up after the show. I don't
1: know, it certainly reminded me of that, but I, I don't know what the influence is.
3: That's the the robots that like guard the garden. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It, the, I, I immediately saw that in Castle uh, in the Sky. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it came to mind anyway. Now there's a statue.
5: My twelve-year-old took one look at it before we watched it and said, "This is like a giant alien Rockam-Sockam robot, right?" And I said, "Well, kind of." He just overcomes his programming, but but he immediately was like picking out different robots that it, it reminded him of. I was like, all right,
0: the uh, when I when I see the end part of this movie, I think of uh, Brad Brad Bird's School Notebooks. Because during this is not the point of the end of the movie, but just another detail. At the end of the movie, when he when all the guns come out, he starts bristling with weapons. The weapons that he that the Iron Giant has inside him. Are interesting and imaginative uh, to, the, to the point of like the things that ki- some kid would doodle in his notebook. It's not just like a series of guns.
3: Oh, like the articulated arms,
0: or the little the little thing where he fires off shots in different directions by by intersecting the spinning disc with a little needle type thing that sends them out.
3: It shoots it like a revolver, like a Western revolver, like Yeah.
0: I could totally
4: see that on Brad Bird's peachy folders back
0: in the day. <laughs> right. It, it could have just said, okay, a bunch of guns come out, and now he's in battle mode or whatever. It's like, no. there's like, we got to think of seven uh, awesome imaginative weapons. They, they got one gimme with the War of the Worlds-type beamy snake things on the head. But everything else they did was fairly original and interesting and is on screen for a split second. and is not important for the plot of the movie, but clearly a lot of thought went into
1: Well, it is the payoff of... Uh, seeing that the giant is a weapons platform and that he is made for for destruction that is the payoff but you're right it's there for a second and then we don't see it again
3: i think i think that's a big that's a big part of the movie on multiple watchings for me is uh i don't say his awareness but like what what the robot knows you know i i like you jason i like the fact that i don't really know where he came from or like why he doesn't know what he's for but i don't know i'm I don't know. It sounds D- Dent in the head and space are the answers, by the way.
4: Well, the only, the only issue with that, and it's not really addressed by the film, and obviously for, for clear reasons, uh, we are totally screwed as soon as more of these robots show up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, they're all friendly. You just don't shoot at them. They'll be fine.
3: I, I I assume it's a planet – I think it's a Planet Hulk situation. I think he got, got ended up falling off and ending ending up in the wrong place. But, uh, but, you know, I mean, to me that becomes somewhat poignant because it's not so different from that Cold War mentality of like, hey, listen, I don't want to be a monster. I don't want to kill anybody. But if somebody shoots at me, I'm going to destroy their country.
4: Yeah, no, I think it's pretty clear that a robot that's loaded down with that many different kinds of weapons is not a peace-loving robot.
3: Well, or but he's a defensive robot, though. He's he's his job is to go somewhere and and be a guard or defend, I guess, and or maybe till he's activated. But I like that. I think that works as I don't know for me that worked as an analogy for the Cold War in some ways too, which is nobody thought they were a monster at the time. Nobody thought that what they were doing with arms escalation was something that was going to you know endanger generations of people. They thought they were doing what they had to do because they knew so little about what the other side was doing. We've got to we've got to you know get all these guns otherwise you know we're going to be dead and that un- not, not knowing what's going on i think really feeds into that cold war paranoia that's what made it paranoia is we didn't we didn't know what a shambles the soviet union was you know
0: yeah i think that's why the uh, the emotional bit at the end of this movie that we'll eventually get through the reason why i think that works or at least it works for nerds of our stripe if i can include us all into this is that if you identify with the robot not hogarth but the robot that is a, a lot of the uh, emotional payoff at the end of the movie because, you know, it's a kind of an Edward Scissorhands situation. You know, who you know what alienated child has not felt that they are large, capable of, of mass destruction, but ultimately misunderstood and being shot at by everybody. And, you know, you know what I mean? Like, that's, uh, by the end of the movie, we're identifying with the robot and we're not thinking of Hogarth anymore. And that's uh, that's maybe why this is a cult classic and not a widespread movie because maybe you need a certain kind of... Uh, disposition or childhood experience or both to identify with the robot in this movie.
3: I I would also like just to clarify for for my own purposes that we we, we differentiate the end of the movie and the endemic end, end, end of of the movie because I got some (laughs) thoughts on that. All right. (laughs) There's two things I don't like about this movie uh, I'd like to return to. But, you know, yeah, I mean, the the, the entire, like what should have been the end of the movie, uh, absolutely uh, staggering, you know.
4: You think the cat uh, should be talking at this point is what you're saying
1: time for a break for me to tell you about our sponsor and this week we got a brand new sponsor the incomparable is being brought to you by drobo very happy to have drobo as a sponsor what is drobo drobo is a family of storage products they give you big storage fast storage and protected storage protected against hard drive failure Storage that's easy to add to when you need more capacity or easy to replace if something goes wrong. Now, let me tell you, for years I have had a uh, a Mac Mini server in my house. I'm on my second or third now of the upgrades over time. And uh, that's where I store all my media files, all my junk, uh, That, uh, especially as a laptop user. I don't have the space on my MacBook Air for this sort of stuff. I have it on my server Um, it's also attached to my TV so I can play some stuff back on my TV right there from the media server. It runs a music server, lots of things. Um, and about two months ago, I attached a Drobo 5D to it because, um, Previously, I had attached a whole chain of, of uh, Thunderbolt and FireWire and USB hard drives over the years. I an- ended up with this motley collection of, I think I have three external drives, and they've each got their own uh, power plug, and then they're chained together, and some of them are kind of finicky, and then if the power goes out, one of them is off and doesn't come back on until I press that button, and it was a mess, and I replaced it with one thing, the Drobo 5D it is this cool black box with neat lights on it that you can control and you can turn them off if you don't want to see the lights and you slide drives into it and it shows up as in this case a single drive i have this single amazing 17 terabyte drive waiting for me but more impressively than that if i wanted to uh pop out one of the drives let's say one of the drives goes bad hard drives do go bad from time to time I don't lose any data because Drobo is protecting against hard drive failure. It's got this amazing system where it's writing the data to multiple places, so if your hard drive dies, you pull it out, you put in a new drive, Drobo works to repair all the uh, all the problems and you're back in action. I've been using it a lot. Um, the 5D, the model that I'm using, attaches to my Mac mini server. I'm on a gigabit Ethernet network here at home. I take all my incomparable project files when I'm done and I, I drag them over the network, drop them onto the Drobo. Super fast. All my media files are on there. It's it's great. I really love it. Um, it has uh, Thunderbolt, which is how I'm connecting. It also has a USB 3 interface. There are other Drobo's too. There's Drobo Mini, which is much more portable. It's uh, about three pounds. It can uh, it can have up to four two and a half inch drives. And uh, there's also the Drobo 5N, which is a network version of what I've got. It'll actually attach to your TV and uh, stream video to your TV using uh, Plex. uh, And it also just attaches to your network. So if I didn't have my server, I'd probably get the Drobo 5N and use it as my uh, network server, uh, my target for Time Machine, and my media Jukebox, That's pretty cool. And you can also add an mSATA SSD accelerator, which accelerates reading by adding a little SSD into the equation and uh, sort of caching your files and making it even faster than before. So Drobo's been around a long time. The first Drobo launched in 2007. It's come a long way since then. Now they're super fast, attached to your network or attached to Thunderbolt, and there's even the mini version that's small and portable and yet full of great storage, plus protecting your data against drive failure which is key because drives are going to fail. Like human beings, drives are mortal. Anyway, here's what you need to do if you want to check out Drobo. Go to drobostore.com, d-r-o-b-o-store.com, and here's the offer code to use for $50 off either the Drobo 5D or the Drobo 5N. Offer code Snell. Ah. That's a good one. My name. Put in my last name. You get $50 off either the Drobo 5D or the Drobo 5N at drobostore.com. And thank you so much to Drobo for putting a single box with all my stuff on it in my house and for sponsoring the incomparable. I wanted to mention a couple a couple uh, gags that I really liked, um, or at least one, one gag that I like a lot is the um, when Hogarth and Dean uh, – Hogarth eventually takes the robot to Dean at the junkyard. And there's that moment where um, – where first Hogarth drinks espresso and is bouncing off the walls, which I really like. And, and you get all of his backstory in that 30-second in that <laughs> mm-hmm. bit of him.
4: Everything you ever learn about Hogarth, you get in 30 seconds while he's hopped up on espresso. His name is
1: Dean. We like Dean, is a very nice line. And then there's the really funny thing is Dean's like, nope, nope, no way, see, forget it, see you later. Cut to 37 minutes later.
2: <laughs> all right. That's a really nice gag. I like that he can stay. Dean is also really chill, just like those engineers. You know, he's there's there's some kid sneaking around in his scrapyard in the middle of the night, and he's like, "Come on in, it's Maine, you know. Come <laughs> come hang out with this scrap art scrap artist and have some espresso while I hang around in my kimono. I'm totally I'm totally not creepy. You know who you can't trust? The man from the government.
5: <laughs> and that child grew up to be Stephen King. Uh,
2: yeah, the, you know the the uh, I, I like that though. There is that feeling of
1: like this is a town where people don't lock their doors and. You know, and it's and it's like, sure, kid, whatever. I mean, and I really feel it's like, I know who your mom is. I know where you live. You know, I go to the diner. It's fine. Whatever. What's going on? And he's cool. He's 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 cool about it. He doesn't have any chloroform that he's sharing.
0: <laughs> yeah, pers- <laughs> personally. <laughs> the studio <laughs> was paying enough attention that he offered him espresso and not something else, at least.
4: This is interesting, though, in that it's a PG-rated uh, animated movie where they, they clearly reference alcohol in several occasions. Like they accused the old codger at the beginning of uh, being drunk on whiskey or beer when he sees the giant robot. And then later you see the general sitting in his room watching some Western or other on TV while Mansley talks to him. And he's got some whiskey neat sitting on the, on the uh, side table next to him.
0: The general, I like, uh, I always like when there's a rational uh, military person. And so we ha- we have uh, Mansley being all the, the crazy Atherton, I think. But the general, for the most part. John Mahoney, he's totally reasonable i mean he's he's a little bit excitable, but in the end he's like he wants to not harm children he doesn't want to nuke a town in maine like he's got you know that's what it takes to be reasonable yeah not nuke or, maine. Even, or even when, or even when the guy calls him up and says is a giant robot, he's like uh stop bothering me yeah i need I need to actually you need some evidence I'm not getting out of my chair until there's an actual robot, not just tales of a robot, whereas if he was like, oh, a robot, we gotta you know so this he's not as cartoonish as he could be.
1: Yeah, I like I like Mahoney and at the end he he is very clearly acting rationally. He 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 doesn't believe the the crazy robot talk at the front and then at the end it's very clear, you know, I it, this movie would have been a much lesser movie, I think, if everybody in the town misunderstands one slight thing the robot does and becomes an angry mob and all of that. We
0: have to kill the robot, yeah, you know. And
1: and no, it's like he saves the kid who's fallen the kids who are fallen off the building. And because they're looking at him, but he saves those kids. And what actually seems awfully uh, Miyazaki esque as well. Yes, there's no ticker tape after he catches them, though. So <laughs> there's that. But, uh, you know, and, and everybody's like, everybody's like, yay, we, we you know, yay, the robot. And, and, and the general's like, this is not what, you know, this is not what we thought it was. Uh, you know, we're not going to do this.
2: I enjoy that after Mansley orders the launch, um, he uses his last couple minutes on Earth to, like, chew him out. Right? He's like, I've only got a little bit of time here. I want to make sure that you know how dumb you are before we die.
0: Or, or making sure he can't <laughs> escape, as if he could drive away in a jeep, a jeep fast enough to escape the uh, the oncoming nuclear blast. But...
4: Well, he's looking for something to duck and cover under,
0: I think.
1: <laughs> There's nothing out in the town square that he can hide underneath. This is the the cartoon version of the that uh, Hunt for Red October, you know, you've murdered us! It's like, you fool! But, uh, you know, it's all okay in the end. Um... What else? Before we get... We shouldn't, you know, get to the end yet. Uh, What else do people... I already talked about poop jokes. That was key that I bring up poop jokes.
3: I like the the way their um, relationship evolves. You know, there's a lot of stuff I, I was, you know, willing to... Well, I'm not like a super critic, but I was willing to overlook, you know, a lot of stuff about the skepticism, like the town's not that skeptical that a robot just saved these kids. The mom seems to warm up to the robot pretty fast. I was okay with all that because I love the way that Hogarth and I mean, you know, really the heart of the film, the middle of the film. So much of it is about their relationship and how quickly uh, the robot is is getting this new culture. And I think that's really where the heart of the movie is, the, you know beating heart of the movie is, you know, getting the idea of Superman and understanding, you know, this new world that he's in. I thought that was, I thought it was all really well done and doing it in those little steps and, you know, doing the cannonball and all that stuff. I thought that was really well done.
1: The Superman versus Atomo thing is brilliant too, right? Because it's this, robots are supposed to be the bad guys and, and, and not only is that a piece of, of, of pop culture from the from the 50s like here's a superman comic book let's let's read it i'm trying to teach you about life on earth by showing you about a a superman and an evil robot which is not life on earth uh but you know and and that he's like no atomo superman
0: beautiful yeah even even after showing the lesson hogarth wants to play act that game and hogarth wants to be the good guy and wants the robot to play the bad guy and the robot feels bad about playing the bad guy because he doesn't want to be the bad guy
5: when, that was one of my favorite moments, was not not just that you have where he's showing the comic books and saying, here's Superman and here's Atomo but he also shows him the spirit, which is almost a throwaway moment. It's just, oh, and here's the spirit. Here's another good guy. But, you know, it's very thematic because here's a hero who uh, is thought to be dead, and he, he wakes up from suspended animation and just becomes a hero. And it was just a really nice sort of subtext right there and it's like oh and then we'll go on to superman is that a dc comic uh it is now the most the most recent one the most recent book by darwin cook was a dc book
1: right but that's a cl- it's a classic
5: oh yeah that's from the 40s yeah oh okay
1: we should talk about the bambi scene there is a beautiful uh deer that they spot and that, uh, that comes up to the Iron Giant, and he touches its nose, and it's this really nice thing. The and least skittish deer of all time. Of all time. You no, know, they are obviously feeding the deer in Maine. They're feeding it by them by hand.
2: Well, I mean, we see that, you know, like that deer doesn't, you know, it's going to have some li- lifetime I- issues with how far it's yeah. going to make it. There's, don't, there's a big, don't somewhere in the forest there's a
4: big metal nipple that delivers deer food, and that's why he's not freaked out when the gigantic finger ap- approaches his nose.
1: Maybe deer aren't afraid of robots only living
2: things. And maybe he has hearing issues, it's it's unclear. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so then so then the deer dies and, and and Hogarth is put in the position of trying to explain like death and other issues of the, you know death and what happens to us when we die to this giant robot from outer space, which is fascinating to see a an 8-year-old kid trying to explain these these weighty matters to a robot who basically doesn't even understand or at least
0: can barely speak any words. Well, he's trying to figure out whether robots die. He's like, well, I guess you, you're you're a machine, but you have feelings, and like a, a lot of Hogarth's, uh, he does the thinking out loud, which you know maybe not realistic, but it's good for the movies where he's talking about when he first finds the robot. All right, so well, I could bring it to my mom. No, no, we got the screaming problem again. It really should stay here. No, <laughs> that that definitely don't do that. That's what makes people shoot at you. You know, so like he's he's going and same thing when he gets asked this by the robot roboter to explain death, he's like, I don't know, are you alive? I, guess you're alive. Yeah, you're alive. You so say you'll probably die too.
4: There's really a lot of exposition in this film with the uh, characters sort of explaining what they're doing as they go, which normally I find kind of irritating. But in this case, I was watching with my seven-year-old son and there was a lot of stuff I didn't have to explain to him. And it wasn't just over the top irritating
0: kind of, uh, you know, I am now going to go to the bathroom kind of stuff. Oh, well, that was one line like that. He did like when when Horoth gets knocked in the snow, that what's his name says, he's unconscious, but he's okay. Right. Or got it established in one line.
1: Yeah, he could. He could have a traumatic brain injury. Who knows? No, no, he's fine.
0: Well, you just need you need to move the plot along. You need you need the robot to think he's dead. You need the
2: audience to realize he's okay. I mean, I think that's kind of the best part of the movie is all the stuff where Hogarth is. You know, he's talking to us, but he's talking to the robot. And the robot, the giant's not going to say anything except, you know, at, not, at least not verbally and funny robot guttural things. But it works really well, and I think part of it is the animation is great. If you watch those scenes again. Hogarth is is so kind of exaggerated and expressive. Um, He talks with his hands in a way that I don't think any children actually do, but it works really great. Um, I mean, one of the things you can kind of do in terms of, like, evaluating how effective that animation is, you know, watch it with the sound off in terms of seeing, you know, what does he communicate with his body language that matches up with what he's saying. There's also just kind of looking at him as, like, a silhouette. He does so much with his hands and, like, away from his body um, that totally conveys what's going on and, and, you know, makes those scenes interesting and not just exposition about what's going on
1: it's also the look of somebody who's trying to teach somebody who doesn't understand your language it's that involuntary like you start getting into the body language trying to like gesture your way to understanding and that's what hogarth is doing with the with the giant at a lot of points i think
3: now, i thought the scene where where the robot was imitating him worked on a lot of le- on a lot of levels because it was it was a great shortcut to helping us understand that the robot you know was a learning machine it could it could pick stuff up and it was trying to emulate him uh, but it also sort of showed that he wasn't threatening you know what i mean and also the great animation of like the weight of the robot like like landing you know to to imitate hogarth beautifully done
1: i love that where he sits where he sits down yeah exactly it's such an amazing little little bit
4: And for all that uh that helpful exposition uh sort of helped my son get it as, as he was going along, I, I think the uh, deer scene was maybe a little too weighty for the seven-year-old. Because <laughs> his response <laughs> at that point, as the deer's lying there and the, the two rifles are lying in the snow next to him, uh, he turns to me and says, that would be cool if he picked up those guns and attached them to himself. And then when something <laughs> bad happened, he'd go pew, 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 pew.
5: I watched Tonight with, with the nine-year-old and the 12-year-old, and they loved it, but the nine-year-old was wrapped from the first, the first scene. and just watching.
2: Hogarth getting knocked unconscious is a little rough too, right? I mean, that's like, I mean, because it's a kid and it's the protagonist, that, that feels a little, you know. This is why you need to have parental guidance. They
1: suggest
5: parental guidance, so guide! He got it immediately. You know, it's like right right in that moment, he's like, but the robot saved him. Said, well, yes, keep watching.
0: Well, they also have to have the robot, like, I mean, there's, there's so many, uh, there's not a lot of... Uh, fat in this movie that's there for no reason. Like The train crash is to establish that the little parts come back together, which will be important at the end of the movie that Marilyn doesn't like. And the poking of the deer... That, that, that when the deer is dead, like he goes to touch it, and he's like, "Oh no, don't touch it!" Or, because he was about to like stand it back up, which I thought would have been hilarious, but maybe also not inappropriate for a kids movie. Uh, but uh, he does the same gesture to Hogarth when Hogarth is in the snow. He goes to touch him, and he does the yeah. same little motion. And Hogarth doesn't move, and you know he doesn't understand the difference between unconscious and dead or whatever. Uh, you know that shorthand, right, a lot of a lot of economy of motion there. They they get things out. That, that's why I think the plot is really well structured. Like this looks like. We talked about Pixar as you know, a uh, uh, brain trust and everything. This this looks like a movie that had gone through a lot of story beat uh, polishing to say we got to do this, 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 this. And it all fits together into a nice, beautiful puzzle. And, you know, there's and, and everything's there for a reason. And it all works. And, it, and it, it's not overly telegraphed that we're insulting the intelligence of the audience, but it is clear enough that even a kid will get it.
3: And you get how gentle uh, the robot is, like the, the, that he gets that this is something he needs to protect, maybe like the deer. He cups it in his hands. Even when he, like, puts his hands down to have Hogarth walk out of his hand, like his fingers, like, turn into a little ramp. That, that Hogarth can walk down. You know, he doesn't think I can just, oh, I'll drop him from 10 feet and he'll be fine. It's, it's, it's got a gentle quality. And, and that's part of what's amazing to me about the animation is how much the robot is in the movie. It isn't just like there's a, there's a shot of a guy in a rubber suit over here. I mean, he, he really is, he's interacting with everybody and, you know, understands. He's almost like a mastiff. Have you ever known like a really large dog? A dog that's like really aware of how big it is in a room. He seems a little bit like cowed by how big he is. And how powerful he is compared to these little people.
1: I'm really warming up to the idea that he is, um, that his actual purpose is something that is like a guard. Uh, you know, because I what I don't want to really believe is that he is a killing machine that is, you
3: know, out, just being sent places in the universe to slaughter people. That well, if if he were, it would have been a really. I mean, I'm, I agree with you because I think if it were, I mean, it wouldn't have been a movie. He would have, he would have, it would have been War of the Worlds, and he would have looked for the weakest thing he could destroy at any time.
4: Well, that's the whole point of the the dent in his head. He's he lands on his head and he ends up, uh, you know violating his programming because he's temporarily well
0: i mean it's, it's a self-determination thing it's like you choose what you are if you are just a thing then someone then it's just like an inanimate gun if a bad guy has the gun he does bad things but if a good guy has a gun he does good you know whatever but if you are not just a gun if you're not an inanimate object then you have a choice about what to do and what he's fighting against is you know his programming or whatever is defensive in that even if you choose to be a good person or even if you are a good person in your heart if you if your eyes turn into little red uh, yeah, that's octagons, right, every time points a gun at you, getting back to the, the Cold War thing is like, oh yeah, no, we're all good people, but don't point a gun at me because then I turn into the giant crazy thing with a million you know laser shooting snakes coming out of my shoulders and
5: and and that's that's why it's important that every time he does that is because it is purely a defensive reaction. He's not going out there and hunting things
1: and that's why i li- I like to believe that the the, the dent on his head is to have him lose his mission and not know where he's supposed to be or who he is but i i would like to believe that the you know and again we're arguing about the personality of a giant metal uh, creature but <laughs> i like giant metal uh, yeah creature. So cool. <laughs> yeah later we'll talk about the real robots <laughs> so so I'd like to believe that the that the giant is n- fundamentally is a defender. I think that's a really good way to think it. He acts, he responds with lethal force when attacked, but he's not going out and seeking things to destroy. And so I, I like that thought that this is a a creature that's built with huge armaments, but you know is not fundamentally. We see he is not fundamentally um, a destroyer of things. He he only
3: acts when he's when he's shot at. Now I think that's I think that's plausible. Like he would be he might be shot out like if he's part of some intelligent alien force he might be shot out to some planet where we don't know what's going to happen hey listen don't shoot the place up unless somebody's shooting at you and then that's something we need to know about and you need to defend I think it, I think it's sensible.
4: All right. Well, either way, we're totally screwed because even if he's a defensive weapon, what are the odds that four or five more of these things land on Earth and they aren't shot at?
3: <laughs> Steve's worried.
0: He <laughs> came here accidentally, but I think he's an offensive weapon. And I think that uh, the, the reason uh, – it's like the defensive stuff like your reflexes if you touch something hot. Like you can't – that's not going to come out of you from getting a knock in the head, but, but you'll forget your programming. So he's essentially – You know, he's forgotten what his programming and mission is and could be commanded to be an attack robot. I think that's what he is, is an attack robot. But underneath it all is the, well, you know, defend yourself. So the defensive stuff is still there. And at the end, when he gets really mad because they killed Hogarth, the dent pops out of his head. And after that, he's ready to shoot Hogarth. Hogarth is not a threat to him. Hogarth is not pointing a gun at him, but he was about to blast him until Hogarth said, you choose, you have to choose who you are, so on and so forth. So I, I totally think he's an offensive weapon on the planet that he came from or whatever. It's just that that programming got knocked out of him and all that was left was like the brainstem kind of... uh If you are threatened by something that looks like a gun and wh- and you know what a gun looks like because you're a military robot, you react. But at the end, he goes full bore offensive. He's just destroying everything in its path, including almost Hogarth because... His anger, you know, pops the dent out of his head in typical animation uh, exaggerated fashion.
4: Although he's pretty good about targeting the the tanks and the military vehicles and things, and not taking out buildings and what.
0: Well, it's, it's GI Joe. People eject just in time, you know.
5: Yeah. Well, you know, he's he's not Superman, at least the Man of Steel Superman, because he actually takes care of buildings
1: John you know I, I we can I, like I said I would like to I, I like this idea of trying to believe that that, that he's not a killing machine although th- that definitely is a perfectly reasonable interpretation I, I only mention this to mention that uh, in the chat room we have an opinion that the Iron Giant is actually a love machine And I think I I just wanted to put that out there. I think that's wise words, wise words.
2: That's a different
1: reading of the Cold War.
5: I've seen that movie, too.
1: Um, I wanted to mention a couple other things. Uh, Well, we're talking about the giant, so we got to talk about Vin Diesel. I think, you know, is this Vin Diesel's greatest performance or only, you know, well, no, it is. We'll find out next month. Groot.
3: Yeah. Pitch Black. Pitch Black is pretty good. Yeah. Pitch Black is good. I
2: bet he's going to be a great Groot. I got a good feeling. Well, sure. S- similar number of lines. Yes. Um, you know, so he's good in moderation or in lots, in quantity, both. He's really versatile.
1: But it's a, it's a great, I mean, you need a rumbly... You need a rumbly robot voice, and uh, Vin Diesel provides a great rumbly robot voice for the Iron
0: Giant. But he's, his voice is so processed, though. He has so few lines, and it's so processed that the animation does most of the acting for him. Not that I'm saying he did a bad job or anything, but he is, he's buried in this movie. And yet one of his best performances.
3: This is what I'm saying. You anyway. think so? <laughs> Supposedly they wanted to have like a, a purely mechanical voice, but then they decided, that I, I feel like I can hear a voice in there.
1: One of the wacky things in this movie that I wanted to mention is Hogarth's um, sleep-off with Mansley. It's like Ugh. one 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 step above a, uh, a staring contest is the, they're both across the hallway from each other uh, vowing to stay awake and not let the other one have the upper hand by being awake.
3: But so brilliant, though, how it incorporates like the helmet that we've been seeing him wear, his dad's helmet. Like How great is that?
1: Yeah, and then at the end... Uh, Mansley has uh, has won, and then he falls asleep. He falls asleep and wakes up and sees that Hogar still in his bed, and goes, "Ha ha ha! Good morning, Kent." <laughs> <laughs> then he walks by, and says, "Morning." Yeah, that got a
4: loud <laughs> laugh from my son. <laughs>
3: My, my, my gag, my favorite gag in the movie is when, when Kent is on the phone with, uh, with uh, Fraser's dad and, and freaking out, and he's staring at the oven mitt with the wacky face, like making the like the goof and he, it's as if to say, "Don't you tell me I'm crazy." He flips the oven mitt around. <laughs> Such a perfect note.: well,
4: When uh, John was talking about how compact this movie is, I just wanted to, to bring up the fact that it's, it's refreshing after two, two and a half hour animated films to encounter one that gets it done in one and a half hours. It's, it's amazing. I mean, for a while watching this film the first time for the first time in, I don't know, 15 years or whatever it's been. Um, I was like, man, that there wasn't that much to that movie. And it took me a while to, to realize, yeah, that's, they didn't need any more. Everything that's in this movie is in here for a reason. And that's it. There's not a bunch of fluff. And, uh, there's not a bunch of extra gags thrown in for no reason. It's fairly light on the gags, even though the ones that are there are good. And involve poop, generally. The, the last film that I watched for this, uh, for this podcast was 1776.
5: And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> how, do, how does that compare?
4: You
1: can watch people? this movie back, forward and then backward and then forward
5: again. The poop the poop jokes aren't quite as good. That's true. But the poop songs are amazing.
4: But, uh, but you can actually get through this movie without having to poop, which is nice.
1: Should we talk about the end? Let's talk about the end. Okay,
5: uh, does does Merlin have an opening statement about the
3: end? <laughs> you know, I don't want to. i you know, I don't want to be pegged with that. I, I I like the end that I think maybe kind of should have been the end. I think it's one of the ah. Uh, God, I mean, like, huh, room gets you know, kind
1: of dusty at the end of this movie, doesn't it?
3: I get real dust. We watched we watched it the other night, and my my daughter's like, you know, why why do you always get weird at the end of this movie? I'm like, it's 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 it's, it's amazing. I like it's 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 so perfect, and you know, and I I just feel like it it really is. Hmm. So we're going through two things just. Very unrelated to what you guys just said. We've been going through a huge Harry Potter movie phase at our house. We watch a Harry Potter movie like every night. And the one we watched tonight is 157 minutes long. It was really good. But it was, it's really, really, really long. And i been trying to explain to my daughter the idea of compression in storytelling. Like the idea that like, when you see Hedwig like flying and it's green and then flying and it's white and snowy out. like that's a re- I was trying to explain to her. That's a good piece of compression, like letting you know now it's Christmas time. Right. You know, just those little things that like we don't have to tell you everything that happened every day. But, geez, sometimes it just feels like it goes on and on. Every movie we watch these days that's like fantastical or sci-fi is always two and a half hours long. You know, I I don't have a I don't have a note on how to make that better, but it just feels like and certainly in those books, those are like make movies shorter. How about that one? (laughs) That's a pretty good one. But that's a four inch book. So I understand like why that happens. But but also just this idea of like and they're almost restrained with with Harry Potter by the fact that if they're not utterly
4: slavish to the book, that they get huge complaints from the, the hordes of Potter fans
3: they got they got people yeah people thought they were too slavish with the first couple and then after that they thought they weren't slavish enough anyway but but also you know just getting into that idea of like how much of this like keeps the story moving forward and actually honestly most of the harry potter Ones are pretty good at that, but like you know, the Avengers is good, but it's so long. All these movies are so long. This one, I I thought that by the time we get to the point where stuff is really going down in Rockwell, like I I felt like like a lot of the a lot of the different threads in the movie came together like really elegantly. Right, right, you know, all all the stuff that they want to say about guns, all the stuff they want to say about the Cold War, about understanding. I felt like that all came together really well. Uh, at the point after he catches the kids, and I just I thought it was amazingly well done, given you know how how tight the story was. I thought it was amazing.
1: Now, this is the point where you you've gotten to the point where you believe that this robot is uh, is a uh, is a person with his own decisions that he can make, and so when he makes his act of self sacrifice, there's the moment where he realizes that this killing machine, or at least this machine armed with all these these weapons, what he decides to do is not. Uh, you know, is not anything on that level. He decides to just fly upward to intercept the nuclear missile and save the town and sacrifice himself. That is a decision. You know, Hogarth says that you got to choose what you want to be. And he
3: chooses sup- being Superman. Especially given that we, ju- we just saw that like Hogarth like causes him to like shoot off kind of off to the right uh, of blowing up the, the boat out in the water. And we get that he is kind of a bomb like he could be a, a very serious threat but his reaction is to is to be superman
0: yeah well he had already decided early in the movie he decided what he wants to be that's the whole that's the whole identifying with the robot aspect of the movie as soon as he saw the comic books he's like you know atomo or whatever and he says no superman yeah he puts the s on and the thing like he had totally decided i'm like like so many of us have said i'm going to be a good person right but he fa- he fails he fails in that. Well, that's interesting too because he seems intrigued by Atomo at least briefly. Well, well, he wants to know what everyone else thinks of him, but he but he wants to be Superman and he fails at being Superman repeatedly. He constantly, whenever a gun comes out, he almost he almost kills Hogarth a couple of times. He almost nukes that the the, the battleships. Uh, And the end of the movie is not now I finally decided to be good. He was trying to be good the whole time. The end of the movie is him successfully being good for him, for him turning his desire to be a good person into actions that, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, it's
3: It's, it's not that hard to want to be Superman. It's, It's hard to actually do it on the day.
0: Right. And especially hard for him because, you know, he's his programming or the you know, he's design he's designed to be he's got all these weapons coming out of him, he's designed to blow things up. That's what he's good at. So all these excuses of why he's failing to fulfil his thing and at the end of the movie, it's it's him realizing as he goes up to the missile that he is he has now become the thing that he wanted to become. And also is dying at the same time, which is why and, and like, and that, like, I've seen the movie many, many, many times. Every time I watch it, I think it's not going to affect me this time because I've seen it, I've seen it too many times. <laughs> like, and it's so, it's so corny, you know. I am not, I am not a gun. It's like, it's like, is that, that's a little on the nose writing wise. It's
3: like, it's like three – it's three syllables, three syllables, and, and you're like, ugh.
0: Right, and, and, it's, and it's also – it's so on the nose. You're like, oh, you couldn't come up with something better than that? That's like a kid's – and then it still, it still works every time.
4: Well, it's perfectly orchestrated, right? I mean he's flying through space. The, the, the missile turns around. There's a great swell of the score. You get uh, Hogarth echoing in his head. You are what you choose to be. He says, Superman, kind of you know, stoically, and then he closes his eyes. And that's what kills me. He closes his eyes, and his, he's got like a little bit of a smile on his face, even though he knows what's coming. And it's, you couldn't possibly have orchestrated that better. It works so perfectly.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, uh, too bad I wasn't on this episode with you, Jason, but kind of like the Karate Kid. Corny in every possible way that you could be corny, but when all those corny pieces come together in just the right way, you realize why this is a formula that works.
1: So we should talk about the end-to-end part. Uh, which is the, uh, you know, what I've been starting to call the ET ending, which is you, you know. I have an opening statement for this, sort of. Oh,
2: okay.
4: okay. <laughs> well, I can't wait. <laughs> the end, and it's not really an opening statement. Well, it's not my opening statement. So uh, at this point in the movie, my son had been watching the whole thing enraptured. Uh, my daughter walked into the room to have some lunch. She decided not to watch with us. <laughs> and uh, she was munching on something at the table, and uh, the whole real ending happens where he blows up, and she says, this movie is sad. She hasn't mm-hmm. seen any of it up to this point, but she's clearly this movie is sad. And then my son, the 7 year old with a smile, turns around and says, no, it's not going to be sad. I know what's going to happen. It happens in all movies. Mm. Ooh. He's not wrong. And, yep. uh, and uh, yeah, a little yeah. bit later, he gets presented with a bolt, and he looked back with the most Knowing Grin.
3: <laughs> okay, Steve, I, I have an opening statement here, too. I just want to stipulate. I like—against I, I, I against my better judgment, I, I still find myself melting a little bit at the endemic end-end. I think partly because of the swelling music, and it is very well done, and that wonderful, like, sort of like a— Emulation of like a tracking shot, like you know.
0: Yeah, that one's great with the pieces moving in the fog.
3: Yeah, it's very, very well done. And then you get to see that face, and it's it's it really is great. And I'm so happy for my kid that she gets to see the the robot being alive. But I kind of the two things I don't like about this movie are the typefaces in the credits, and and the t- and the tacked on ending. And I, I there's still this part of me I was, I was just. Uh, tooting with a friend of mine who works at Pixar uh, about this. Like, you know, I still, I have really mixed feelings about that ending. I kind of feel like it it, should have, if it really was
2: all the Brad Bird movie, I kind of, I don't know. Am I a karma suck? I kind of feel like it shouldn't have had that ending. You guys prefer the... uh... Like the alternate ending to ET, where it's just an alien autopsy video. <laughs>
3: <laughs> he's, well, I, that, he's still, in, he's still white and being <laughs> <laughs> dissected. That's what you guys are looking for.
4: Yeah. Well, supposedly Brad Bird's original script had had a very different ending, where with, with the USA and the USSR at war or something.
3: <laughs> I tried to be
5: good. <laughs> I, I will say, normally I hate that kind of you know the feeling of attacked on you. Know, oh, it's a happy ending. But now this this is coming from son of a theologian. You know, it, he's also a Christ figure, right? You have to have a resurrection at the end. Ah. You know, it, it just, it, it connects that way. So it made sense to me. It was like, it was okay.
4: Watching it today, I almost thought it would be better if uh, if they had just ended it on the scene of the bolt sort of rolling through the grass towards God knows what. Ah, that's, yeah. That's the, same, that's the same ending, though. It is effectively because you know that the head has to have its little antenna up to be attracting the pieces to it. But but it's
3: a little on the nose to, to end with, with him being okay after an ap- atomic
0: bomb. Well, you got to like tune in next week for the other ne- further adventures of the Iron Giant. Like If you want to go <laughs> into the serials, the, the science fiction serials that he was watching that this movie you know pays homage to so much that, I mean, I, I agree it didn't need to be there for a kid's movie. It's the type of thing I can imagine an executive saying, well, the giant's got to live, right? Like yep. We got to have that at the ending. But on the other hand... It's not, like, whether the bolt's rolling away or you see the smiling face, I, I think the main problem is, story-wise, is that you don't you don't have anywhere to go from there. The, the, like, you, you already had your ending, and now you've introduced this new thing that is intriguing. Oh, but the giant is still alive. And then immediately you think, kid or adult, well, then what happens now? Does he reassemble to go back to Hogwarts? Does he live in the town? Does he work? Does... He carries lumber. He carries lumber from Maine. I mean, like at some point we're going to run out of scrap to feed this guy, and then what's going to happen?
3: <laughs> and, then, and like you say, Steve, then his buddies, his buddies are going to come down. It's not going to be so fun.
4: Yeah, honestly, the fact that he survived the bomb just makes me more worried about what's coming.
0: <laughs> well, see, here's I, I thought about that when I watched it. The, the surviving the bomb, like, oh, how could how could he have survived that? You know, the nuclear bomb. And I feel like the the design of this robot is such that it's designed to come apart easily, so the nuclear blast doesn't doesn't melt him, but rather just disperses the parts. And of course the parts are autonomous and they can find each other. So you want the thing to break apart and spread away from the blast rather than sort of absorbing. It doesn't really make much sense, but it makes a little bit of sense.
1: Actually, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that the, that the nuclear bomb itself goes off. I think that maybe he impacts the, missile in at, at its at its height and the missile explodes and you know if you hit a nuclear so what you're saying
4: is that there's atomic space junk still floating around up there oh
1: it's a dirty bomb well it's floated all over the
0: it, it could have been outside the atmosphere and it could have just you know got, got swept away and burned up because you know that
1: an atomic bomb has to be very precisely detonated or it doesn't actually do the chain reaction so i think he smashed into it flung into a million pieces the 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 missile itself you know
3: plunged into the atlantic and it was the per- you're saying it's the percussion of the of the strike. Yeah,
1: yeah. He he, yeah. he whacked into it and, and prevented it from doing the big big uh, nuclear cloud. That's
3: what I'm gonna choose to believe.
4: Well, do we, do we know what an atomic bomb does in space where it doesn't have air as a medium, or at least not much?
3: If this, if this were – now in retrospect, though, it reminds me of the end of Wolverine uh, – the Wolverine origin movie where oh, Deadpool man. puts his head back on. Like this would have – if this were a Marvel movie, that would have been after the credits. I,
2: I
1: like – well, that's that's true. I, I think – I do think you have to end the movie this way and I don't mind because I, I, feel, I feel that the giant's – you know when this when this kind of ending is bad is when in hindsight it f- you feel like the, the it wasn't a sacrifice that they didn't truly make the sacrifice expecting that it would be a sacrifice but
3: he he knew it was a, he knew it was a sacrifice yeah
1: he he closes his eyes he's expecting that this is the end um and and then you also get the uh, what i think is really important is you get that the town has built the statue of him um, which is also one of those things that makes the room a little dusty for me is that they, he was appreciated and not hated, and here is he'll always be here, and the children will look at this this statue of the of the iron giant, and then at the end, yeah, it's more like um, it's just a nice it's not, it puts a smile on your face at the end that oh but but wait, and then that's it, and you never get the door closes, and and you feel like isn't that nice that he still has possibilities and. The end, right? Maybe he'll grow up to be the king of Iceland or something. I don't know. But Robot King. Benevolent robot king of Iceland. Well he can fly back to wherever he's from and tell him not to blow the crap out of us.
5: He That's could. maybe what the second movie's about. I'm I'm just happy he didn't wink at the end. That would have killed him. <laughs> but you know, as 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 it goes to black, and I'm sitting there looking at the font and cringing and twitching.
3: Can we talk about the font? Is it just me? Well, yeah. It's, no,
5: it's not just you.
3: What is that, like Euro style? What is that? <laughs>
5: oh, God. It looks like the the opening credits from Tech War. It's it's like, what is with this font? But, you know, we're sitting there, and, and my 12-year-old immediately <laughs> says, so when do they make Iron Giant 2 Giant Harder? As well, uh, I don't know. Yeah,
3: that's when the love robot programming really comes out. God, what a horrible face. Who would pick that? Who would pick that? Because look at, look at the. here's the thing. Here's the thing about Brad Bird. You look at, like, all (laughs) of the stuff in his movies. He cares so much about, like, how every newspaper looks. You go and look at, like, in The Incredibles. Look at how all of, like, all that stuff looks. Who picked those fonts? It was not Brad Bird.
0: (sighs) It's kind of like being an author where you don't get to pick the title of your book. Well, in in non-Pixar studios, it seems like the people who make the movies don't get to pick the credits. You know what I mean?
4: Well, this was made on a very, very low-budget you know for an animated feature and on a very tightened schedule so maybe this was just
3: one of those things
0: where it was 70 million dollars that's not a low budget
3: did you guys did you guys see this I, I had no idea like i've been off of the cable for a long time did you guys see this when it was played on what did they say on cartoon network they would play this for like 24 hours once a year did you guys did you guys know about that is that is that where you guys first saw it I saw it there one year. This was their Christmas. This was like their Christmas story. Like they would, they would play this for twenty four hours on.
5: Yeah, that's what
1: Wikipedia says anyway. I heard about this from Roger Ebert, you know, because he gave it a a really positive
0: review.
3: Emmett Walsh. It's got Emmett Walsh. And that, and that
1: was what what made me see it before we had kids.
0: That was probably that was probably Roger Ebert's childhood too. So of course he's going to give it a big thumbs up.
4: I did want to go back to. It was very briefly mentioned, but uh, I really like that scene where he's presenting him the comic books. And uh, and he goes through you know the Superman comic and he goes through Atomo, and it's it's clear at that point that the that the giant is intrigued by the Atomo comic. It's a very short little subtle thing, but he sees Atomo. He goes, oh, it's me, and then Hogarth very quickly says, oh, he's a bad guy, and he covers it up with a Superman comic. And in that in that mere moment there, you could almost see you know an alternate version of this story where he does go bad, but you know in that in that
1: brief moment. That's also a kindness of Hogarth, right? He does, he he doesn't want to think of this robot as a bad guy and so he's like
0: he doesn't want to know the the world is racist against robots. Yeah. Check out Superman, he's awesome. And also it's Atomo, which is a little on the nose, but still. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the atomic holocaust video in the classroom is great. It was, the oh. guy, with, it's almost, oh, it's almost like wonderful. a uh, what's his name, uh, something K, the Ren and Stimpy guy, where the kid is left on the desk and on the pedestal of, of Earth that has been unharmed <laughs> from the bomb <laughs> after the blast. The
5: desk is there too.
0: What's what's the what's the Ren and Stimpy guy's name?
5: John Crickfalusi.
0: Yeah, Th- that 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 whole film strip looked like something he could have done.
5: Yeah, that's the, the well, that's your
1: that's your modern. Uh, snarkiness inside the '50s thing is these media portrayals that we get, where we get the duck and cover video and we get the horror movie.
3: You might want to stick that in uh, notes, uh, Jason, if you can find it. Atomic Cafe, you remember that that used to be on USA at night, and it was all like, is is that am I remembering that right, David? It's all like old, like '50s. Like duck and cover was a thing. They really were like, it's okay, just get under your desk. Well, well uh, Atomic Cafe
5: was a, a documentary film. I think you're thinking of Night Flight. That was the <laughs> USA thing that showed like all these weird 50s movies and stuff
3: yeah but there was yeah there was one that had a, that like had collected a whole bunch of those wackadoodle like like 50s uh you know municipal safety films yeah that that is atomic cafe that's that's that
1: what else uh what else i i've, I've got a, sort of everything covered here but i i don't want to go before everybody gets their gets their say about stuff that they want to talk about about the iron giant anything else yeah,
4: you know what that uh that duck and cover video in the iron giant it looks like it's Modern snarkiness, and it, it clearly is, but it's not that, frankly, it's not that different. From
3: the- no, I'm I'm looking at the thumbnail. The thumbnail from Duck and Cover is a turtle wearing a helmet. No. Like, it's all going to be good. Just get in your shell. It'll yep. be good. That's
1: right. It's fine. It's fine. That's why it's so funny when Mansley, he's got to go Duck and Cover somewhere, I guess.
3: I hope we've covered Mansley enough, because he's, he's so tremendous in this. I, I, I What a fun character. At Mansley, I work for the government. Chris
4: Chris McDonald is superb at that. He's made a living on on doing a Weasley.
2: When he chloroforms Hogarth, it doesn't end up for being being for any reason. It's just to be a disturbing. Like he chloroforms Hogarth, and then Hogarth wakes up in his bed, and no significant time has passed in the movie. If, if he just ended the interrogation and said, "All right, let's go to bed now," that would have been anticlimactic. But it was. But it's not like it's not like he went and did a bunch of stuff while Hogarth was drugged. It's just like now you're in your bed. And I'm going to stand here and... Uh, I, I, no, I, as I think Merlin, uh, Merlin can probably relate, but what he
0: really wanted to avoid is having to tell him for the 900th time to get his pajamas on and brush
2: mm-hmm. his teeth.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Which part of it's bedtime don't you understand? Perhaps more disturbing
4: in that scene is the fact that mom stays out all night.
0: She's working. She's a single mom. It, it, there, was, there was surprisingly a little uh, sexism and shunning of the single mom in this movie. We said,
1: we've said almost nothing about, about Hogarth's mom. She she was off on a date with Ross
4: for the whole thing. I I cannot separate Jennifer Aniston from her voice in this movie. That's my problem
5: with the mom. I kind of liked that actually. I, I didn't mind.
3: This is uh, around the time she did uh, Office Space, too.
5: Yeah.
1: Less flair on the on this waitress than.
3: I have a similar problem with <laughs> Fraser's dad,
1: but ah. that's only because
4: after all those years of seeing him as <laughs> Fraser's dad and well he was on uh what was it? Was it
3: um he was in uh, Say Anything. Oh, he was so great in that.
4: I didn't have a whole lot of notes here. I, oh, I, I really like the, uh, the image of just the head with the eyes lit up that you see in shadow from the distance.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Several times in the
4: movie. Yes. I think that's, that's really well done and nice and subtle.
5: I mean, even just the first, the, the first moment where he says, I see the lighthouse. And, and then it turns and there's two eyes and you go.
1: Ah. I love the scene where where they turn back, where the army is leaving town, and they turn back, and there and the giant is towering over every building in the entire town. That is a wonderful scene. And he's just hovering; he's not doing anything. And that's and then Mansley, of course, says he's
4: attacking the town
5: and gets everybody all worked up. And and there's a moment right in the beginning where it's it's the waves, and it's after you know it's like when you're just seeing the waves then. Uh, where it's almost exactly the, the composition of the Great Wave of Kanagawa by Hokusai, which we have hanging on our wall. So both of the kids went, "Hey, I went, yes,
3: I know that uh, wave." What about the pop songs? Are those real songs, or were they written for the movie? Because they, they feel like real pop songs. Which pop songs? That like that, that Trini Lopez song during the Trini Lopez sounding song during the montage. Yeah, that's. Is that a real song?
5: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those are those are genuine songs. Searching every witch Away, That's that's a classic.
3: Oh, I didn't know that.
5: mm mm-hmm. Mhm.
4: Was uh was wig out really a thing in
5: 1957? <laughs> Cuz we get at least three different wig outs. Although, well, you know, Dobie Gillis and Beatniks and all that, that would be about the right the right time. I wonder if they ever used wig out on that. I would just assume 60s
3: for that because of the whole wig element of it. Yeah. My daughter loves when uh, Dean is reading the paper after the, uh, after the, the cannonball and all the water shoots oh, out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See,
4: I, I, that scene was problematic for me, too. Why are you in the road? He's just murdered like half a lake's worth of fish. Yeah. And that raccoon is not <laughs> long for this world either, I suspect. No. <laughs> Hate crime. Yeah, that, I mean, that
5: was a nice button on that, too. Just, you know, fish, fish, fish. Raccoon.
4: Also, the animation of Dean floating through the wave is a little weird.
1: I like that he's holding on to his armrests and that keeps him oriented properly throughout the... And he
0: lands. Yeah, they they do uh, exaggerated cartoon physics sparingly. Like, the other thing that I think of is when the hand is crawling back to the robot, it lifts up the corner of the barn and goes underneath. It's like... You have you're allowed like one or two seconds of ridiculous cartoon physics, and then you go back to their more or less
1: <laughs> real world. Well, the hand is also a dog. The hand behaves like a dog, which is cute. It's more of a cat, really. Well, I, I think it's a dog. It's, it's it's a fast wag on the tail. Yeah. Have you ever had a dog take
4: the toilet paper apart?
1: Because that's a very cat thing. Yeah, but the
0: dogs eat it.
4: Dogs eat more than that.
0: Dogs eat a dog. <laughs> <paper. laughs> <laughs>
4: I think
3: you got it. You nailed it, Jason. Right. It's in the can. Boom, in the can. Got it. All right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'll, I think it's time to wrap it up. Then.
3: Do you remember the raccoon?
1: <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of the Iron Giant, which was lovely. And I'd like to thank my panelists for discussing it with me.
4: Steve Lutz, thanks for being here. Oh, I'm glad I could be here, Jason. It was a uh... It was a fine
1: time. I wouldn't want to talk about those poop jokes with anybody else. I was going to say, yeah, I, I almost didn't uh, <laughs> join in, but
4: I knew you would be sad if there were poop jokes discussed and I was not here to...
1: It would feel wrong. I would feel as if one part of my body had popped off and was slowly beeping its way back to me. So I'm glad you could be here. It's, uh, it's a very disturbing a- image. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can tell you but what part that would be if it was Steve. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> David Lohr, thanks for being here thank you anytime anytime well then i'll uh, take that as a uh, yeah no i appreciate it <laughs> tony cindelar thank you for being here john Syracusa, thank you for being here to talk about animation again we, we veered into anime just for a moment there we'll have to talk about some uh, other animated films in the future i think
0: yes i, I am also not a gun
1: all right good. i've heard
0: that about you good to know
1: Ed merlin man thank you for coming back i really <laughs> appreciate you being here this was a lot of fun
3: i rest my case
1: all right that's good no, no final statements, no final, uh, final. Uh, I don't even know what I'm saying here.
3: The, the, I think the cat was talking.
1: Do you think the cat, is the cat magical or was his magic and kiki all along? Thank you for having me on. It was great to have you. And for The Incomparable, I am your host, Jason Snow, once again. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Want to know what we're doing next? Want to know when our t-shirts are back on sale? It's going to happen soon. Sign up for our mailing list at theincomparable.com. Just scroll down to the bottom of the page. Give us your email address and we will send you neat emails every now and then.